that crazy? Yeah, I'm like, like, I feel like that's one thing I really want to get back to a little bit. I feel like I don't get to have time to do like traditional things like I used to. Like yeah. we've all just been sitting here working remotely, like the whole family. And then it, I think about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, we used to have so much more time, like coming back, for, um, like after college or whatever. There's like, there wasn't anything to do. So we actually got to like hang out and do, all I'm trying to say is growing up is hort. <laughs> <laughs> growing up is hort. You poor thing. I can, I can tell you're sick now. I'm, I'm hearing it now. You poor thing. Oh. oh my god! Well, go easy on me today, then. <laughs> the I will not. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess we should. I guess we should announce we're doing so in you know light of a, a Christmas episode or a holiday episode. I suppose we are going to cover the Sodder Children. So hello, everybody. Welcome to Creep Time with Silasine and Stu. She's sick as a dog. I'm, I'm filled sick to the as gods. A dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you are pumped. Plumped I'm and pumped. Snatch. <laughs> yes, for those just tuning in, I got filler, um, as we were talking about earlier. Um, and I love it. I love it more than words can say. I, I will say it's pretty minimal. I think it's minimal and it's tasteful. Creepers, not only is it tasteful, but it's good. <laughs> it's good filler. <laughs> well, the best filler, I always say, I'm like, the best filler is the filler you can't detect, you know? Nobody comes up to you, you and says, say? like, that's what I've said since I was four years old. I was four years old. At <laughs> I shouldn't say the name of my school. <laughs> Let me not dox myself. I'll just bleep it out. <laughs> At <laughs> elementary school, four-year-old me in the pre-K program, I said, the best filler is the filler you can't detect. <laughs> <laughs> and my teacher said, go get a fucking milk and sit your ass down. <laughs> okay. You've done research on this one, right? For the solder children? Yes. I've done minimal. I don't know how. That's, like, fi- that's fine. Because I've done too past, much. I've come in probably with more. Okay, good. Okay. We'll balance each I've other out. T- I've done too, too much. I mean, freaky story. Definitely. I I hate sinister stories like this that happen around like the holidays because it's I don't know it feels like such a sacred time for like nothing bad to happen. So hearing something like this, it's devastating. But this story is just mysterious. You know what I mean? Because I, I I know we'll get into it. And we'll like uncover why it's so so odd. But I would say it's less tragic and more strange. Would you agree? Yes. That I, that was actually something I thought was so bizarre when I was reading about it is it didn't seem like they had much time to grieve and process like what went down it was like it didn't seem like a tragedy yeah it just kind of seemed like okay let's skip the grieving process and try to figure out like what the heck happened like internally within the family you know what I mean it was like a hunt like immediately yeah but let's see so I don't even think I'm going to get into a top line here I'm just going to start into the story should I just go for it yeah just go for it all right. All right. <clears throat> so our story, and this is, okay, so I've done this research and I just typed it like stream of consciousness and I have not read through it. So let's hope it's not a BS, <laughs> right? <laughs> the first sentence is, <laughs> what was your line about filler? <laughs> that like, what? book report on the solder children. And then the first line is, the best filler is the kind of filler you can't tell is there. <laughs> 
if this was like a book report that I was submitting, I would be admitted to like a psychiatric facility. <laughs> it's like intermixed with like a grocery list. I'm like thinking of Christmas presents. <laughs> okay, well, let's just see what I wrote and let's uh, let's try to piece together the story of the Sodder children. So, our story begins on Christmas Eve, 1945. This is when Marion Sodder, she's the eldest sister of the Sodder children, she returned home from her shift at the Dollar Tree to spend time with her family. So she spent the earlier part of the evening kind of passing out these presents to the younger siblings, and she's spending time with them, the parents, George and Jenny Sodder. And the parents allowed their kids to open a few presents on Christmas Eve because they had a little bit more to celebrate this year. Because timing-wise, um, it's funny because I, I didn't put two and two together, but 1945, World War II had just ended like a few months prior, which meant that the eldest son, who was serving at the time, was going to be returning home to Fayetteville, West Virginia. So this was a celebratory moment. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? Did you ever open presents on Christmas Eve? Because I never did that. Christmas Eve was like, that didn't no, happen. No, never. But I feel we like were Christmas so many families only. did. No. They do. It's a tradition same. thing. And I've never... Same with like Elf on a Shelf. I just learned that that's like a huge thing with most families, doing Elf on a Shelf. Did you ever do that? Yeah. I've only known about that because... Well, I think I don't think Elf on the Shelf existed when you and I were growing up. Really. Yeah. Oh, really? Like, I think it was a thing that came about in the last, like, probably 10 years. Right. And when we grew up in the 70s, it didn't exist for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, a lot of people don't see our faces. They may, they may believe that. I know. <gasps> I could have pushed it I'm further. Like, people might think that I'm, like, like 50. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, all right, so Elf on the Shelf, I'm already off. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, they allow their children to open up some of these presents because it's celebratory. So the evening carries on for a little bit, and as it gets a bit later, two of the older sons, John and George Jr., they head upstairs to bed. When I first read that, I was like, Stu's brothers? <laughs> Is this Stu's right. family? <laughs> Truly. So... They both head up to a shared room in the attic. And this is why this is important. I want to, like, stress this, um, the layout of the attic. So pretty much all of the Sodder children stayed upstairs in the attic, but it was divided into two rooms. There's one room that has George and John, the older brothers, and then the other room holds five of the younger children. But the youngest child, Sylvia, who's three, actually sleeps in the parents' room, which is on a different level of the house. So shortly after, you know, rolling around, it's like 10.30 p.m., that's when George Sodder, he heads to the master bedroom to go to bed as well, and his wife follows too, and she brings the three-year-old daughter, Sylvia. Now, timing-wise, this is important because the five younger children, they wanted to stay downstairs. They wanted to stay and play in the living room with the toys that they had just opened for Christmas Eve. And the family, since they were feeling, you know, pretty good about the night and spirits are high, they allow it because... Marion is going to stay down there and she's like I'll stay on the couch I'll stay with them I'll keep an eye on them while they play so that is the last mark we have of the Sodder children being seen and just for you know further context on the age ranges of the kids they're between 5 to 14 so I think that's important just to think about the kids that are a little closer to like the teen years because in my mind like 13 14 is not as corruptible if that makes sense that'll make more sense mm -hmm. in the latter part of the story but I, I just thought that was interesting how old some of the older kids are yeah so parents go to bed they fall asleep but around 12 30 a.m 
the phone rings and only Jenny Sauter wakes up because she's a light sleeper and she hears it coming from the next room. This is in the father's study. So she gets up, she walks over to the study. She's completely dazed in a REM cycle. I can relate. And she answers the phone and she's really unnerved by this because it's a woman's voice and she doesn't recognize her. And she's asking for somebody who she doesn't know. So she just assumes that this is a person who has the wrong number. She's calling really late because it's Christmas Eve. I don't know. Maybe it's a, like a Christmas party or something. And she just says, I'm sorry, but I think you have the wrong number. To which she's met with this woman on the phone who's kind of like maniacally laughing. I have always found that to be the eeriest omen in the story. And I don't think, I don't know if it's like ever been proven that that's directly connected to the case. In fact, I think it might have been disproven at one point. Mm -hmm. But to me, this is sort of like the first tell that the night was sinister. Did did you read that part? And you were like, "Mm -mm, bad news. Something's off. Yeah. 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 (laughs) um, Something's off. And so it's like 1945. Like to get a phone call back then, wouldn't the operator have to like put you through? Like it's like more of a whole operation than nowadays so it's like very yeah. strange the whole call to me at twelve thirty is so weird i don't really think i understood like how the operator system worked because you're right because it, a later part a latter part in the story they talk about trying to get a hold of 911 through the operator and they have trouble because they can't even reach the operator because it's so late on christmas eve and i'm yeah. like what a, what a damn nightmare like but yeah i guess i didn't Total think about nightmare. that like 1230, this woman, wherever she was, is able to get through somehow. I don't know. But that's also important, too, because we know that the phones were working at that hour, at 1230, and then later, they're not. So, very interesting. So, let's jump back into that story here. So, we get that phone ringing, that odd call. The woman's laughing into the phone, and the mother's kind of off-put by that. Um, she's unsettled, but she just hangs up the phone and she assumes that it was nothing. The mother, Jenny, starts heading back to bed. And as she's crossing the hallway, she notices that the lights are still on in the family room where the children were playing earlier with their toys. So she heads in to take a look. She doesn't see anybody. None of the kids are there except um, Marion's there. She's on the couch. She's sleeping. But she notices a couple of things that I wanted to call out. The, um, the blinds, not the blinds, the curtains are open in the living room and they weren't before. So she thinks that's strange. She closes them and she notices the front door is unlocked. So she locks that. And again, she doesn't think anything of this. She's just like, Oh, maybe it was Marion. Maybe it was me. I don't know. Maybe maybe we just, we got hyped up around Christmas and we just forgot to do those things. But she just Mm -hmm. assumes the kids are upstairs in the attic. They went to bed, right? It's 1231 in the morning. So she finally goes back to sleep. After locking the door and everything and, you know, hitting the lights. And then after about 30 minutes, she wakes up again because she hears the sound of something hitting the roof like a ball and it's rolling. Again, she doesn't think anything of this. She's just like, maybe it was an animal. I don't know what that was, but she just goes back to sleep. I feel like there are a lot of red flags here, but maybe, I don't know, maybe when you haven't experienced the worst, you don't assume the worst, and that might have been what was happening. But just 30 minutes after that, we now roll around to 1.30 a.m. Jenny would wake up again. Only this time, she wakes up and she smells smoke and then sees it billowing into the bedroom. The house is on fire. Immediately, immediately gets up, 
goes to look where it's coming from and notices all the smoke and the heat is kind of pooling from the study, George's study. That's where the flames are billowing in from. So she runs back to the bedroom and she starts screaming. She gets George up. They grab Sylvia. Um, they get out to the main hallway. And Marion, the older sister, she grabs Sylvia and immediately takes her outside to safety. George and Jenny are screaming upstairs to the attic where all of the children are. And they're like, get down, get down. The two older brothers come racing down from the attic. The other five children do not. They don't even respond to the screams. And then at this point, I think the, the hallways are really starting to like burn up bad. And just for like further context of how bad the fire had gotten, even at this point, when the two brothers, George and John, come running down, their hair was singed off their heads. Did you read that? Yeah. Yeah. Rough. <laughs> rough and scary. Rough. So <laughs> pretty damn rough, I would say. <laughs> but again, so the five children, <laughs> they never come down from the attic. Um, but the family, they're, the house is engulfed. They have to leave. So they get outside and the father, George, starts running because he's going to try before he leaves to make a phone call so we can get the fire department there. The phone line has been cut. Phone is completely dead. So then George and the older brother, uh, this is George Jr., George the father, and then John, they all run to the closest neighbor to immediately try to get a hold of the operator. This is where the operator thing came in to try to call the fire department that way. They cannot reach an operator, which I, I don't know if there's anything sinister behind that, like conspiracy wise. I do think that like it was really late on Christmas Eve. There was a national employment shortage because of the war. So that could have been it. And again, it's this feeling of like nothing bad happens on Christmas Eve. But yeah, we would learn that's not true. Um, but but even how this was time, the phone line cut? Well, We'll get, in, we'll get into, like, how their phone line was cut, because we've got some confessions that would come out of that. But even, I mean, just on the topic of the operator, George trying to get a hold of this neighbor to call the operator, they couldn't get through another neighbor who wasn't even contacted by um, the Sodders. He just happened to see the fire. He's trying to call 911 and get a hold of the operator. He can't get a hold of him either. So now, like, time is elapsing where the fire department's not even aware that this house is burning to the ground. So... At this point, the house, because it's burning so badly and time is running out, the five solder children are still up in the attic. George runs to the side of the house because he's going to grab his ladder. He's going to get up to the attic window so we can get them out that way. Runs to the side of the house. His ladder is missing. <laughs> the ladder is gone. Somebody moved that thing that night. So panicking, he springs into another idea. He doesn't have time to think about that. He goes back to his truck. He has a, um, I think it's a coal truck that he has. He's, it's tall enough that he's going to back it up to the house. And he's like, I'm going to climb that. I can get up to the second floor or the attic floor with that. Gets into the truck. Truck won't start. Happens to have another truck. Tries to start that one. Does not start. What the f***? Like, Truly. Off off the bat, off the bat, some conspiracy going on here. Um, and both had operated and were running fine, like, the day before. So the chances of both of them going out on Christmas Eve, not coincidence. It's not. So even at this point, in the desperation, I think one of the neighbors actually drives into town to try to track down the fire chief because time is running out. Um, and at the time, they had some kind of alert system which was super dysfunctional, but I think it might have been the only way they could do this. Um, 
Basically, it's like a phone tree. So if the chief gets an alert that there's a fire, he has to call the next firefighter, who then has to call the next firefighter, and so on and so forth. And they have to go through this whole like phone tree system before they can actually assemble like a group at the station and get over to someone's house. And I'm like, did any fire get put out in the 40s? Like, that's impossible. I know, I know. Like, oh I want to say that it was probably just because of the holidays. Like, everything was probably yeah. shut down. Which further, I mean, to me, it became more and more obvious that if this is a conspiracy theory, that... Mm-hmm. I mean, what a perfect day to choose the person. Oh, definitely. Everybody's about guard that. is down. Yeah. Yeah. Or persons. Yes. Or persons. Or persons. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a disaster, though, because half the men who were e- even like a part of like the fire team, the volunteer firefighter team, they were gone um, because of. Uh, they have employment shortages. There are men who were already deployed to war. The fire chief can't even bring the truck himself because he can't drive the fire truck. Isn't that insane? He doesn't know how to drive the fire truck. <laughs> I did truck. not read that. Yes. Oh, my God. He, that, that's why there was such an intense delay because he had to wait to get a hold of somebody who could then get to the fire station to drive the truck. So all the Sauter family could do at this point, they could just stand there and watch the house as it burned to the ground, assuming that their children were inside burning with it. It was devastating. Within 45 minutes from them discovering the fire, the entire roof had already caved in and had crashed down to the basement level. So whatever was left in that house, whoever was in there, was gone. Now, by the time the morning came, there's nothing left of the house except ash. And the only firefighters to ever arrive came at eight in the morning due to all of these delays and miscommunications and it being Christmas Eve. That's six and a half hours after the fire broke out. (laughs) There's nothing to put out. (laughs) Like it's a joke. How devastating. I, I mean, yeah, at the time it, it was incredibly devastating, especially since they believed that there, because of this, all five of those children had died in the fire. So, The six and a half hours had elapsed and all the investigators could start doing was kind of assembling a recovery crew because they assumed these children died. So they all start looking through the ash and the rubble and they're looking for the bodies of the children who were left in that attic. Now, after combing through the wreckage for hours, they conclude that they found no human remains. So... Their explanation to the parents at the time was that the fire had been so intense that the children's bodies had just completely burned to ash. Essentially, like, their their bones even had been cremated. Now, that doesn't quite sit right with them, but that is the explanation they're given at the time, right? I think we have a little more, like, forensic knowledge now that, like, any common person might know that if you burn in a fire, you don't burn to ash, it takes a very specific amount of heat and like um, an enclosed space to cremate somebody, you know? Yeah. Yep. But again, that's what the investigators rule and that's what they give to the family as the explanation. Now the investigation into what caused the fire was ruled to be the result of faulty electrical wiring, which most likely originated from the study accidental. So in the following weeks, in like the grief of the tragedy, it's this huge story. The Sauter family attempts to move forward with the explanation that they were given, that you know this was a f- fire as the result of bad wiring and their children's bodies were just simply lost to the flames. 
So they receive the death certificates um, that have an explanation, you know, for how the children died. They have this kind of explanation from the investigators. And George finally comes back to the actual site of the fire and he fills it with dirt. Hold up, my computer's about to die. (laughs) (laughs) I just saw it was like 3% battery. (laughs) I thought you were about to pull out a box of dirt (laughs) and you were going to be like, dirt. And I was like, this is new. (laughs) And I happen to have a sample in front of us. I have a sample of dirt. Okay, also, let me put my phone. I just realized it's over this wire. Hold on. Your house goes up in flames during the Solder Children episode. Literally. Okay. My God. I'm finding some wood to knock on. All right. Um, (laughs) Where was I? So, in the following weeks, in the grief of the tragedy, it's this huge story, and the Solder family, they attempt to move forward with the explanation that they were given for the fire and what happened to the children, and they just assume they were lost in the flames. So, they get the death certificates explaining how the children died. They have the explanation from the investigators, and George comes back to fill the plot of land where the fire was with dirt, just as a way to kind of cover up, like, the ruins and and make more of a, like, a memorial site out of it, right? And then they would actually still end up building, I think, a new home on the same property, just in a different location, as the Sauter family attempts to move forward with their lives. But for both of the parents, something doesn't feel right about what happened to their children and they're not alone in this as later on there are several witnesses who step forward and they claim that they saw something on the night of christmas eve so one of those witnesses is this local bus driver right he happened to be passing by the Sauter family home very late that evening and he saw what he described as a group of people who were standing on the lawn of the Sauter family home who were throwing what he said were balls of fire at the roof. So I just want to like take it back real quick to like what the mother remembered that night. If you remember, she woke up around one in the morning and she heard something hit the roof and roll balls of fire, right? Mm -hmm. It had to be some, it had to be that. So now when they go back to like the, the, the wreckage site, basically what they had turned into a memorial, Sylvia, the youngest daughter is playing out there. This is like several months later after like some of the snow had melted from the winter And she finds something. It's a ball with like a little screw on the top. And she's unsure what it is. So she brings it back to the parents. George thinks he has an idea, but he brings it to a military official to confirm. So what the military official confirmed was it's a small type of grenade, very similar to like a pineapple bomb. And it was something that could have been used to start that fire. So he believed that it was certain that the fire was not caused by the faulty wiring as the story that they had been told, but it was caused by this little like pineapple bomb, which Jenny heard hit the roof and roll that night. And then the mysterious phone call from the unknown woman was kind of like a setup maybe to make sure that the family was home before it happened. So this all tied in to the mysterious disappearance of that ladder as well. We talked about that. That was found not on the side of the house, but 80 feet away from the house, thrown down an embankment. That does not happen unless there's intention. You know, like that fire was a setup easily. Easily. Totally. 
And it's actually just now hitting me as you're describing this. They probably use that ladder to like spark something else on top of the house. Like that could, they could have easily done that. Any of the noises and like the oddity of what happened between like 1030 to 130 that night. So many things could have happened. They could have been like planting things on the roof. They could have been cutting. They definitely were cutting wires as we would learn. So that ladder was definitely used. Now, as a part of this investigation and the mystery of that night, another witness comes forward who claimed that a local man named Lonnie Johnson um, was seen stealing something from the Sauter family shed that evening. He, allegedly, he had taken like a like a block and tackle, I think, um, which was used by the father for his work. And following his arrest, he did admit that he was there that night. He stole from the shed and he had also cut the phone line to the Sauter family home that night. Um, kind of like assuring that they wouldn't be able to call police if they caught him or they wouldn't be able to call for help, right? Um, although I think his story on that was a little murky because he thought he was cutting like the entire power line to the home. He would cut all electricity, but he did not. He he cut like the phone line, which he said was a mistake. Maybe he just didn't know what he was cutting. But mm-hmm. to get there, to climb that, or to get there to like get high enough to cut the phone line, you have to go up 14 feet. So the ladder was definitely used, for sure. So he might have been the explanation for how that ladder was used. He cut the line, he stole from the shed, and then he just threw the ladder. I don't know why he would throw the ladder away, but he did, according to his story. Now, still, a lot of this has played into the uncertainty of the night, but there's more to the story. And the Sodders can't figure out what might have happened to the children in all of this, because again, at this point, they had still been told, your children died in that fire, They were just burned to ash. Now, now that we're like piecing together that some of this seems pretty intentional, I'm trying to figure out the why. So looking into the family, they're a pretty average like Italian-American family. They're middle class. They're well-respected in the area. George is considered a hardworking man. He built his trucking business from the ground up. And I did want to call attention to a few distinct instances just a, a couple of months prior that might suggest the neighborhood had a different perception of the Sodders and did not like them. Now, you probably read this too, I'm sure, but George was very outspoken and very political and anti-Mussolini at the time. Mm-hmm. So there's there's one incident that I wanted to bring up. So this was following like an unknown man who came to the Sodder family residence and he asked to speak to George and this was like weeks to months prior from the fire. And he was asking for work, basically. He was like, do you have any available work with your, your trucking business? To which George said no. And then the man starts darting around to the back of the house. And George is like, what the hell? Follows the guy to the back of his home. And he's looking at like an electrical box. And he's like, he very blatantly says, that's going to cause a fire one day. Now, bad omen, number one. Number two, that was confusing to George because he had just had a professional electrician in there to work on that box because they had fit like an electric stove or something in their kitchen. So that was an unnerving comment, but it also didn't make sense what he was referring to. He was like, the wiring there should be perfect. It was just done and checked. Now, just weeks after that, a life insurance salesman comes to the front door to sell George a policy to which George declines. And the man becomes extremely, extremely irate. And as he's leaving, he starts shouting and he goes, your whole house is going to go up in flames and your children are going to burn in it. And you're going to pay 
for your dirty remarks that you've been saying about Mussolini. So, <laughs> let's talk about Mussolini. So, we, we know the infamous Italian fascist. George, like I said, was very outspoken politically to have criticized him, and that did not sit well within the Italian-American community. And the vast majority of the neighborhood who did support Mussolini thought of George as the odd man out. But that does not necessarily translate to a plot to burn your house down and kill your family. But it did play into the theory that this could have been a retaliation attack. Now, more to the mystery here, I think, started to unfold for Jenny Sauter, the mother, when she started to become very erratic with this thought of the children being completely gone, eviscerated into ash. It didn't sit right with her. And then she stumbled upon a story because she started reading a lot of like morbid literature and morbid news stories. And she found one about a family of seven who had all burned in a fire. And in the latter part of the story, they reference searching for the remains where they found all seven skeletons. They were able to retrieve them, even a three-month-old. So this sparked something in her. If that family was found in their fire, why was my family not found? So what she starts doing, I don't know if you read this too, she starts to buy every type of meat that she can. She's buying like every animal, every cut, like legs, wings, breasts, and she puts it in her oven and she chars it for hours, burns every ounce of flesh off that meat to see how long and how hot she can get it before the bones will turn to ash. And the kicker is, as we know, they never do because bones don't burn like that. But this, for mm-hmm. her, is the experimentation to figure out, I, ha- I just have to see, I have to see bones burn. And it never happens. So she comes to the conclusion, my children didn't burn. They weren't in that house. She can't recreate the experience of what that fire, and what they claim the fire did to her children's bodies. So this led to the theory, the most sinister theory and probably true theory, that when the house burned down, the children were not inside. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, my first thought is, I, I, it's hard for me to reconcile the idea that if they were inside, that you wouldn't mm-hmm. smell the bodies being burned. Like I, I, feel I, I like saw that noted know. in the research too. Yeah, yeah. no one ever commented because the firefighters were asked about that. They were like, "Did you smell burning flesh? Did you hear screams?" All of them said no. I didn't know that you could smell burning bodies like that. Yeah. Well, I just figured that the smell of five bodies burning, like you you would know in your gut, like if, I would think if they were still in the house, but I guess depending mm-hmm. on how big the house is, I mean, I've never been around flames that are that big for a structure that big. So I don't know if you really could smell, but I think that was my first thought. I was like, wouldn't you smell these bodies burning? Um, but the second component is the fact that they only chose, like whoever this was chose to go after, I guess, was it the five children that were in that? Yeah. The five children in the attic. Yeah. And then they let the other two go, I guess. Like if you're thinking about it from the perspective of like, did they take some of the children or something or like, how do they Mm -hmm. orchestrate this? And they have they leave the teenagers. I mean, I, I don't think that that's totally odd because it's like, of course, you'd probably leave the teenagers because you don't want they're like they're going to be too. They're, they're smart not corruptible. To, 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. I was trying to think of the word you used earlier. Um, yeah, they're not corruptible. Um, and then I well, there, yeah, to, there were four left yeah. in total. I think the the three oldest, one who was like working age, Marion, and then the yes. youngest who was like literally in the bedroom with the parents. So obviously yes. she stays. Yeah. And then I guess I just started to think about. I feel like the whole like fascist layer to this is so bizarre mm-hmm. like the Mussolini like especially in this like small little West Virginia town it's just the whole thing is kind of like what a what a strange layer added um yeah yeah so I, I guess we should, we should yeah. probably talk about like why that might have caused some discontent with the I mean I understand like it was a vast majority was an Italian American community political tensions ran high. I'm not sure. I mean, that probably had something to do with the war that was going on at the time when that consumes so much of your day-to-day life and your your talking points. Like, if you are an outspoken... um, I mean, this isn't the first time that we've seen political violence, but this is extreme, extreme violence, I would say. Uh, Just motivated by differing opinion. But, yeah, to burn somebody's house down... With the assumption that the kids were inside, but as we, I mean, as this would prove from what the mother kind of proved, they were never there. So that just adds an even stranger layer to me because like you were saying, the other children, the older children are left inside. I can understand the two boys being upstairs in the attic. Marion, the daughter, was sleeping on the couch. So I'm assuming those kids never went upstairs. They just, the front door was unlocked. So they just went out the front door. How did that happen? If Marion was down there did she really just fall asleep somebody walks through the front door and convinces five children two of which who were like 13 and 14 to go with a stranger out their front door and she doesn't wake up once that's insane well how, how did that old was marion she was working age she had to be like she might have been 18 honestly she might have been like like a full adult yeah i mean she she might have just slept through it and thinking Maybe. No. I mean, that is a, that is ballsy. That's a risk to like go in. If you truly have a plot to do this, to like take these children and burn somebody's house down, to go through the front door where like their chaperone, the older sister, is literally on the couch sleeping. It's ballsy. Yeah. I can't. I can't did, wrap my head around that. Did you have any sort of? feelings that this might be like an organized crime kind of thing like mob style they did this yeah there are some theories that this was the a part of the italian mafia some people have even said that george because he was i wouldn't say a high profile person they were definitely middle class but he had a successful local business and as we know with like small town mafias they prey upon successful businesses to extort money to launder money to do you know criminal activities it's not off the table that they tried to recruit him and he outright refused and this was their retaliation. I don't know. It's also, I mean, I don't rule out the possibility that like it might have been less alarming for the children if there was a woman involved in the scheme because we know a woman Mm -hmm. called. Um, And then we would later find in some of the theories and like witness reports of seeing the children that there were one to two women who were with them. So... Oh my god, I hear your puppy. <laughs> I miss that dog. <laughs> There's multiple puppies in this house right now. That's why he's he's Otto. There should be my so much good. audio you have to cut out of this episode. I'm keeping every <laughs> single bit of it. Well, <laughs> creepers, in that you case, get ready. <laughs> oh my gosh. But I think that's, yeah, I think that's interesting, the idea of maybe, like, not a man coming in, but a woman coming into their home. 
who then somehow coerced them out in like more of a friendly way. A lot of people mm-hmm. have said like maybe she lied to them and was like, are you coming to the, the Christmas party? Are you coming to this? And then they just they just like went with her for something. I, for, it might be easier to convince children in the 40s versus like yeah. today. Like so, I don't think a seven or eight year old today would just be like, yeah, I'll yeah. go with you. Are you fully convinced that so you don't think that the children perished in the fire at all? Well, there is a theory that the children did die in the fire and that the bodies were found. They were just so gruesome that law enforcement county decided to cover the county, decided to um, basically hide the bodies from the parents because they were like, we if we tell them we found the bodies they have to like legally like the the protocols they have to see them to identify them or what's left of them and we can't do that to them with five of their children so they just took the bodies off with like the wreckage basically i do find that to be a far-fetched theory because that was never corroborated by like multiple people who were there as the recovery crew the consensus was just that we didn't find bodies but i have some okay I have to keep going because I have some crazy shit that does happen yes. with this. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Now, where did we leave off? So, it led to the theory that the children were never even in the house at the time of the fire. Now, several months later, there's a woman who's a few towns over. She's reading about the Sauter family tragedy, and she sees like pictures of these kids in the paper, and her blood runs cold because she recognized four out of the five children, having seen them a week after the fire took place and she saw them at her place of work, which was a hotel. So, I mean, that's a pretty strong leg for for someone to stand on, to go out of their way. She signed an affidavit. She was like, I witnessed these children. I saw these children in person. She even talked to them. She got like an up-close look with them. So she worked in some hotel that was nearby. And again, like a week after the fire, she said four out of the five children happened to be with two men Two women, they checked into the hotel for one night, a single night, and they stayed in this huge room. Again, Italian mafia, maybe. And she talked Mm -hmm. to, like, several of the children. She was just asking questions. But when one of the adult men noticed that she was talking to them, he, like, ushered them away from her, and they kind of just, like, froze her out. So she really didn't get much of, like, an interaction with them, but she remembered it when she saw their pictures. But this was not even the only sighting of the children. So we have another witness who comes forward who says that on Christmas morning, literally the morning of the fire, she served the children and these adults, these same adults, breakfast at like um, some like diner or like a rest stop diner or something that was like several towns out of uh, Fayetteville. Uh, But what she noticed while she was looking outside the restaurant and she watched them get back into their car, the car they were getting into had a Florida license plate. This is an interesting story. And an interesting clue, because the very next witness account after, like, the woman who comes forward a week later comes out of Florida, Cortez, Florida, which is like a fishing district where these children were seen again. So investigators follow up, like local investigators follow up on that in Cortez, but they're never able to track down the children. And then by 1947, between everything the family had learned and all of these witness testimonies of people saying they saw the solder children the consensus becomes that the children never died. They were never in the fire, but they had been kidnapped and were probably still alive somewhere. Now, at this point, George Sauter, he writes directly to the FBI 
to solicit help, for, and he gets a direct response from J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> who says that he would like to help, but he can't. He says he can't. He's like, it's out of my jurisdiction. But he gets a little bit of pushback, and he says, I'm willing to get the FBI involved if like, the local law, law enforcement will cooperate with us so we can like work with them. This is interesting, and it's unclear why, but the Fayetteville County Police refused to cooperate. Which Typical. spells a very different story to me. I'm just saying. <laughs> I've said it before. I'll say it again. Say it you again. can't trust County. <laughs> you can't trust him, honey. <laughs> no. <laughs> just, just to like back that up even further. Um, <laughs> that you can't trust County officials. This is where this gets really wild. And I read this this morning, Stu. Nearly had a seizure in my bed as I was typing this. Because <laughs> I wanted to tell you about it. So we already know you can't trust county police. They're full of shit. Turns out you also can't trust um, the fire department in this case. So in 1949, the Sauter family, they hire a private investigator who begins interviewing people in the Fayetteville area. And he talks to a local priest who comes clean and says that the fire chief, remember the guy who couldn't drive the damn truck? Mm -hmm. He came in on Christmas morning and made a confession saying that he found a charred human heart of one of the children in the ruins when they were like doing the cleanup, but he didn't have the heart to tell the family. So he grabbed it, placed it in a box that he somehow had in his truck or something, and then buried it within the ruins to protect the family. First of all, I thought when you confess to a priest, that was like confessing to a therapist. Nothing leaves the room. <laughs> Why yeah. is this priest out here? I mean, of course, that's a sinister thing to like confess to because it's a crime. But like, why is this priest over here running his mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I like heard that and I was like, snitches. Damn snitches, these priests. Snitching. But thank God he snitched because what the f- Like, how, how, what, it just blows my mind that they thought let's just hide the fact that their kids died and they won't care enough. They'll be so grief stricken. They won't care to follow up. Like, and then they didn't know who the hell they had chosen to do that to, because not only did the mom then start conducting her own science experiments to see how charring oh, yeah. works, the dad mm-hmm. makes like billboards and like, you know, memorials. Oh, they, and they like, weren't going to rest. They were never going to rest as they should. Well, especially once you've got a private eye on the case, like that's somebody yeah. who's going to do like your dirty work for you. But this, this actually gets even crazier. So he says, I found a heart. I couldn't tell the parents. So I put it in this box and I buried it. Bullshit. Bullshit. And this is why. So if that's true, that would most likely suggest that for sure, obviously the Sauter children were in the home. They died. And all of this is for naught. But that investigator, he doesn't really buy that. So he confronts the fire chief, goes directly to him, and he says, bring me to the site of the wreckage, show me where you buried this box, dig it up. And the fire chief goes and brings him there. So they dig it up, they find the box, and at this point, years had passed. So whatever, like, I don't, organic material was in there, the human heart had already, like, gone away, basically. But that investigator takes the box and he sends it off to a friend of his who's a forensic examiner who is able to test the contents of the box the residue the examiner concludes that what was placed in that box was not a human heart it was a piece of beef liver (laughs) however however (laughs) oh my god this is so nuts 
So when that information gets back to the Sauter family, they're like, well, that's not our beef liver. We don't eat beef liver. So that didn't come from us. The private investigator takes this back to the fire chief and he's like, what the actual f*** is going on? The fire chief confesses he brought the beef liver and placed it in the wreckage and then put it in a box and then buried it to plant and then goes to confess this to the priest to plant the story with the intention to give the Sauter family closure and make them think that their children were in that house and died there. And and the it's just like this long tail fucked up like story he's trying to plant so that years down the line, this priest like sings like a canary and then they go back <gasps> and he was hoping they would dig up the box and then be like, he there, there was the box. There must've been a heart kind of thing. He thought that this was like a foolproof way to be like, plant some evidence like the solder children were there without overtly being like the solder children were there. You know, that is, that is a true conspiracy. That is an illegal yes. conspiracy to disfigure a timeline. <laughs> like what the, I had never heard that before. And I was like, that's nuts. That's crazy. Can you imagine? <laughs> like I have such a hard time not telling <laughs> the truth always in my like day to day life. Can you imagine being a literal firefighter who's having to like deal with a tragedy like, of this magnitude and then deciding that that's the best course of action lying on that huge I mean, scale. If that's even true that he was like, I was trying to, I don't buy that he was trying to plant that to give them closure. I think he was trying to plant like, I don't know, some kind of long tail evidence that would like, maybe he was co- like even coerced by like other people who were involved with this to like do that. But clearly yeah. it was premeditated and it happened very quickly because he went to go confess this Christmas morning, the very morning the fire took place. And that priest just sitting there all those years just being like, oh, well, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I should keep it quiet. <laughs> it's, oh my gosh, this whole thing, the whole cover up to the, the, just the dishonesty around. I know, if, I know. They were dead or not is so weird. Why wouldn't you just tell the parents? Like, of course, they're going to be grief stricken no matter what. Tell the truth. Like, yeah, I mean, he gets hit really hard once the parents find out about this and they go public with it. So he comes up with some rebuttal and he was like, no, 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 no. He's like, it wasn't. He's like, I, we also found the remains. We just like couldn't. We didn't have the heart to tell you. So he sticks to that story. He's like, we found the remains. We didn't have the heart to tell you. I don't know how that plays into him burying a piece of liver claiming it's a heart. <laughs> but basically, this just deepens the distrust that the Sauter family has with the people around them, as it should. And despite this major break, it still does not lead them any closer to finding the Sauter children. And three years would go by before the lead investigator actually steps down from the case because he's like, there's no stone that I that I haven't overturned here. Like, I, I just don't know what happened to them, so I have to leave the case Somehow the Sauter children are just gone at this point. So with the family, they don't really give up. Um, and that's, you know, where probably we get the most famous relic like you were talking about from this case. Um, there's the famous Sauter children billboard, which was placed directly on the burned ruins of the home. Uh, and where it, when it had gone down Christmas Eve 1945. On the billboard, you see five black and white pictures of the missing children who had gone missing late that night. And the billboard would stay up 
for decades, all the way through the 80s. It existed as sort of this like morbid relic that tourists could stop by Fayetteville and they could see the sinister landmark where the Sauter children went missing. The decades would go by, and there were like a lot of false leads, I think, of people claiming to be the Sauter children who were not, people who saw the Sauter children. Um, and as they got older, I think a lot of these leads and a lot of the, the tips that were coming in, they just, they never panned out. It never happened. But there was one odd instance, because again, the family never gave up. They were always looking for information, always hoping for clues. They got sent a letter, which was later traced back to Kentucky, even though it didn't have a return address. And inside the letter was like a picture that had some kind of like encrypted code on the back. And the picture was like a black and white photo of like a young man who was like in his 20s or like maybe close to like 30 at this point. Looked exactly, exactly like one of the five children who went missing. It was never confirmed if that was him or not. They really could not tell. The family insisted. They were like, that's him. That's him. And if that was true, that would mean that not only were the Sauter children kidnapped, but they were kept alive even through adulthood, which I find very perplexing. I don't know about that. Did you read like the back had that weird little message that was like something to his Mm -hmm. brother Frankie? Was it the brother's name or something? It was like, love my little brothers or something strange like yeah, it, I remember if I'm thinking of the same thing, because I think they got a few like cryptic messages, but this one was like really encrypted, I'm pretty sure. Like it was almost like code. Yeah. Which was yeah, bizarre. Yeah. I don't know if they ever cracked that. I don't know. But I I don't think that one ever pans out either because it's a it's a dead end. Like they know it came from Kentucky. They can't figure out where in Kentucky. But I just think with all like the years that had passed, like the Sauter family. It's sad because they had continued to funnel their money, their resources, their time and energy into trying to find out what happened to their children. And they weren't even interested, I think, in punishing anyone after a certain point. There's a newspaper that had a really great quote, and they were saying that the Sauter family, the parents, they don't want your sympathy. They want truth, and mm-hmm. they just want to find out what happened to their kids. I think at one point they had even signed something publicly that said... Anybody who comes forward in connection to the case, whether you're a witness or you're an accomplice, we won't charge you. Like, we'll give you immunity. We won't penalize you or press any charges. We just want to know what happened to the kids. We just want closure, which is the saddest part about that as the decades pass. Like, you just want to know what happened. You assume Mm -hmm. you're not going to get your kids back. You just need to know where they went that night, if they were scared. Like, you want the details. But... That's as far as I think the investigation actually goes. That is the the eerie story of the Sauter children. It is marked as one of the most famous disappearances in American history. And it's especially sinister that it happened on Christmas Eve, 1945. I I just I wanted to bring that one up because I know we've been waiting to do it for a while, but since we're so close to Christmas, how could I not? I know. I like and also this is probably gonna be our Christmas Eve episode. Which is absolutely, it creepy. is. Wow, I, I didn't even think about that. I was like, "Oh yeah, when's this going live?" I'm like, "Oh, Christmas Eve tomorrow." <laughs> like, oh gosh, and, and and it's sad that um, they I guess the parents had to. They, I I will give them so much credit. They really did fight, fight, fight to try to figure out what the heck happened. Like, did you read about mm-hmm. the George Sauter drove? This is where I was like, he's kind of losing it a bit. But he drove because mm-hmm. he thought he saw some little girl's photo that looked like his daughter that she had been oh, enrolled yeah, school. in school or something. He drove yeah. to New York 
he I don't even I don't remember how he found that photograph but he thought for sure it was one of the girls like yeah I did read that it's it's so sad I there were a lot of like leads like that that I didn't include because they don't end up panning out to anything but yeah 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 basically they, they had chased for decades they had turned over every stone I mean I mean, they tried to get the FBI involved. Again, it's just like the the roadblock of the FBI being like, well, if we're going to do this, we need local cooperation. And then local police were like, bye. (laughs) Bye. They were like, this stuff is way too much. And it's also Christmas Eve and we got to (laughs) go. That's the craziest part. I feel like everybody used Um, Christmas as an excuse to not. Well, yeah, or they were in on it. But it's, I mean, it seems... Just um, the Christmas Eve thing Eve is not an like, opportune time together. to do something like this. Yeah. yeah, six and a half hours before the firefighters show up. Yeah. What house is left? The house is dust. Nothing. And the fire. I'm sorry. We got to go back real quick to that fire chief. What the actual f- plants a piece of beef liver? That is the most ridiculous <laughs> I've ever read it. Stu, my eyes were fluttering to the back of my skull when I read that. I'm like impossible. It can't, it's farce. It's farce. Oh my god! Nancy it Grace like would tear it's this so weird. up. <laughs> oh my god! He Can planted a piece of liver. <laughs> Beef liver. <laughs> oh my god! What kind Just of fire chain? <laughs> the things that run through. Truly, I think this is a trend that we're starting to see as we cover more stories where county police is really involved. It's like the ends they will go to to not have the heat on them anymore or to have eyes on a case or to be able to move to the next thing. It just really makes you like, it's really changed my perspective on how I view local police force. Like I just, I know kind of like what, what other fish do you have to fry? that are going to be bigger than the thing that I need you to be concerned about. You know what I mean? Totally. No. What do you, what do you think is behind that though? Is it just like the media pressure? Because a lot of these towns, they never see, tragedies like this they never see big cases like this so what even what's yeah. going on in like um moscow idaho right now with the four stabbings like right i i would say those police are way in over their heads that should have been the fbi jumping in from day one because they don't know Immediate, which yeah i'm sorry i've read a lot about it they don't know which way to turn they are so yeah thrown on their ass because they've never seen something like that in that town yeah and i think maybe sometimes it's a little bit of um like biting off more they can more than they can chew and pride getting in the way because they're like holy crap something this big has never happened in our town all eyes are on us right now so we better mm-hmm. like really do a great job of figuring out what's going on and if they're just not qualified to be doing that or they don't have the resources to be doing that and they insist that they do i think that just with the way that like our government and our police forces work and our local policies that like they kind of like it is their jurisdiction it's their territory like they get to mm-hmm. you know kind of they start the whole ball rolling How, what, whatever direction they take from the beginning of an investigation is sort of the direction that it's going to end up going in so if they kind of botch it from the beginning mm-hmm. it's probably going to be really hard for state and federal law enforcement to come in there and like clean it all up if it's been botched you know Absolutely. No, absolutely. I, I'm just now realizing from, I mean, maybe this is just fictional to like TV shows and movies, but I have seen like people write into storylines that weird 
that weird relationship and dichotomy between like local versus state police and like yeah. when state has to come into something it's almost like having to call in I don't know like a like an adult or like a teacher in a weird yeah. way that's how you feel because like it's kind of in I don't want to say embarrassing but that's the way they depict it in movies and television yes. they're like oh you had to get state involved because you couldn't clean it up yourself kind of thing but mm-hmm. it's never in service of the case or the families who are actually going through this to like like you're saying like have pride be the thing that's getting in the way of the solve it doesn't make yeah. sense yeah, and I they've guess already, they've because... had to retract stuff for Idaho. They've had to make statements and retract stuff they've already released in press conferences. Oh my god, that is in that's a mess. Four Which students is... dead. That's a mess. Which, you just can't be making mistakes like that when it's that when there's this much national media coverage and it's that scary of a incident. Like four children go or you know college kids get killed seemingly kind of out of nowhere like that's not the time to be trying to like swing in like the big hero and solve the case if you just don't know what the hell you're doing yeah it's it's a time sensitive thing too i think now that like more than a month has gone by with that case specifically but a lot of these cases like the more time that elapses like you've said before the further and further you get from actually catching who's behind it they yeah don't have a clue I'm telling you, I've, I've, I haven't covered it like more than I just like the top line of the news story, but I've been following it closely. They are so confused for something that they, I don't want to say they shouldn't be, but like from everything I've read about the scene in Idaho, it was a really messy job. A lot of evidence was left, like DNA evidence was left. Um, so I, in theory, they should be able to crack this one. They're just having a really difficult time. I, I can't wait for us to cover that case someday, too. I know. I I hope that one sees a solve sooner rather than later. I'm kind of waiting for that so we can actually yeah. have some answers before we can cover the story and maybe talk about it in, like, an educational format in terms yeah. of just, like, safety. Because I do think that it had to have been somewhat premeditated, that it had to be someone who knew at least one of them on some level. So there is an element of danger there. Maybe it was an angry ex-boyfriend. Maybe it was, it, it could have been a number of things. But talking about it from like a safety and education standpoint, I think would be helpful. I just have a hard time believing that that was a, a randomized killing of four people on a yeah. college campus. Although, did you read about the dog that was found no. before? You didn't? No. For real? So police ruled that this wasn't connected, although people are saying that them saying that that is a mistake. Like they just ruled that out because they don't, they were afraid three, about two or three weeks before this murder, a dog, like a local dog, someone's pet was found killed, skinned alive and placed <gasps> in the middle of town in Moscow, Moscow, Idaho. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> I'm only doing it because on TikTok, I, I said this and they were like, why are you reporting on Russia? <laughs> it's like, I'm not. There's a town. Papers. Oh my gosh. I don't know what, what look in my eye made you think that I, I was thinking Moscow, Russia, which let me tell you, I'm on enough cold medication right now that I just might have thought we were, in, we were talking about Moscow. Russia. Oh, oh God, I shouldn't be laughing. You're going to make me move my filler. Um. I'm going to shift it. 
Lord. Oh, no, but there's some sin- there's some sinister shit going on with that. I'm telling you, I'm gonna follow that story closely because I I need to figure out what's going on. As if I'm gonna solve it. I'm like, I need to solve it. Hey, listen, I've got to get on it. Things something I said it before on maybe the last episode. Something is happening. Good juju on this podcast with creepers maybe giving their magic too. I feel like things get maybe as we talk about them more and more. It's just timing, but it's weird that cases keep getting solved that we're covering it's so strange it happens like a week after we post these cases or in yeah. some cases like a day with the boy in the box <laughs> that was yes. like 24 hours after we posted i was like damn and, and <laughs> so much weirder because we literally say it we're just like i love how we're just like tooting our own horns right now um <laughs> uh <laughs> like it's just so weird that at the end of that episode i'm pretty sure we just like talked about how funny it would be if like it got solved yeah, like because it seems Lady so far fetched. Like, yeah, Lady of the Dunes. Yeah. Like, like, um, yeah, like sixty-five years later, you just never. It just to me, it seems impossible that those things could get solved. But I'm always floored and delighted to see when it does happen. I do think. I mean, with the Sauter children, could they still potentially be alive at this point, or is that really far fetched? Is that really out there? No, they could absolutely still be alive. Um, if it was 1940. Five and they were age wise for sure. Mm. I'm just more so like, would they as adults, all, all five of them, have been kept quiet, like remained quiet and lived, not admitting yeah. to being those children all those years later? You know, but if so, then why keep that them alive seems... for that period of time? You know, because they were alive at least a week after we think. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. My my gut <laughs> is that they. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> I was gonna. I was like, the second we post this, I'm gonna get a news article. It's gonna be like all five solder children found living in a a halfway house somewhere in like Literally. Michigan. Like, oh my god! All five solder children found in Moscow, Russia. Please, please. <laughs> I'm not. You're not gonna let me live that one down. <laughs> I was like in Moscow, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> you're like Idaho. <laughs> Dylan Parker was from Idaho, right? (laughs) (laughs) Outside of the peach Bellini candles. Okay, he was from (laughs) he was from Osborne, Osborne, Idaho. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. I wonder how close that is. Hold on, let's look this up real quick, and then I'll I'll wrap up the podcast after that. But I just wanted to. Oh God, this has been such a good episode, Creepers. I'm so happy you you guys got to listen to this one. Because the Solder Children I truly have wanted to do for a long time. I'm happy that we finally got to get on and do it. Yeah, me too. I Honestly, feel like I've heard I so much about um, Solder Children in the past because it's like on, like only really one of the few Christmas, you know, kind of creepy murder stories I know about. Or not murder, but true crime. I mean, most likely murder. Yeah, def- definitely yeah. true crime. So yeah. it's about two and a half hours away. So not close at all. Um. Okay. Oh, is it a? Oh, it's a border. Okay, it's a border city. I guess that makes sense. The university. Hmm. I don't know. Whatever's going on in Idaho. Something. Something's iffy up there. Something's going on. Well, okay. With the <laughs> that dog is losing its shit. Can you still hear the dog? <laughs> Just a little bit. I love it because it's making oh me. I'm very pet deprived. I'm very pet deprived because Dexter is in DC right now. A. But oh my god! I, I know. I Why didn't coming. Dexter hit me up? 
because he's a little bitch. Because <laughs> he's a loner. <laughs> he, I keep coming into this living room and I'm like, I always come into like, I'm physically incapable of not picking him up and like cuddling him every time I see yeah. him. So I come in here with the urge to do that and then he's just not there on the couch and I like start shaking and I, I have to grab a vice like a Coke. Oh. This is my 11th Coke of the hour. Good. Good. <laughs> it's the not drink here. of Christmas. It is the drink of Christmas. With that damn polar bear. That damn polar bear, baby. <laughs> All right. Well, before I get any more unhinged, I will wrap us up. Thank <laughs> you again so much for listening to this episode of Creep Time with Sue and I. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope everybody has a happy holiday. Yes. Happy holidays, creepers. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>